what we're doing here today. You know, speak, O Lord, through the words, through the teachings, all the different things that we hear and our responsibility. So if you get a chance, you ought to look at the words and really meditate on those um, about this song and what it is that we do here today. So I'll be reading out of John, and it's chapter, um, page 1051, and I'll be reading from 19 to 35. Wow. Okay. And this is the testimony of John, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had, sent, they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you're neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whom's standal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day, Jesus coming toward him, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him. For this purpose I came baptizing with water, and that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he sent me to baptize with water, and said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptized with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Heavenly Father, Lord, I just thank you for your word that reveals your Son to us. And so, Father, I just pray that uh, you'd use uh, uh, Pastor Aaron and his words that you put on his heart to uh, help us to grasp uh, even to what humanly possible what this all means and uh, what it means to us in our life in Christ. We thank you, Father. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning, church. Well, as we get started, I wanted to uh, remind you all that within the hour, I think it is, uh, the church in Bar Harbor that Tyler is a candidate to be their lead pastor is going to have their congregational vote. Uh, and so I thought we would start our service or start this portion of our service with prayer uh, for First Baptist in Bar Harbor and the Walden family. So would you join me as we pray? Father, we thank you for our brother, Tyler, and his bride, our sister, Susanna, and their children. God, we thank you for the gift that they have been to us. 
um, and serving us so well. And God, we pray for this church in Bar Harbor that is uh, gathering after their service this morning, that is going to pray and consider to call our brother Tyler as their next lead pastor. Uh, and so God, we pray that you would have that be done if it be your will for your glory, for the joy of the Walden family, for the joy of this church as they seek to know you and follow you and love you with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And God, we, um, we understand that there's some logistics that need to be worked out. Uh, they need to move uh, if they call them. And so God, we trust that you uh, already have plans for that. Uh, you are capable of uh, making the move as seamless as possible. Um, and God, we pray that we would be able to partner with this church and with the Waldens in the days ahead um, as we seek to bear witness to who you are and what you've done in New England together. So God, would you be honored uh, in the decision that this church makes this morning? And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for allowing the time to do that. So as we jump into the text this morning, imagine yourself in a courtroom of the most important case in the history of the world. There's been a really, really impactful murder and someone who has died who is very, very important. The media is all over it. The social media is abuzz. And the judge sits there and he allows the defense and the prosecution to call witnesses, one after another. There are tough questions to account for. Some of the testimony is hard to understand. The first witness, he comes to the stand and he's kind of weird. He dresses funny. He eats weird food. He lived out in the wilderness in the boonies, but he came to the trial to bear witness. He was prepared. And this morning we will see more of this first witness, John the Baptist. This morning in our courtroom drama, we have God's witness, God's lamb, and God's son. Let's look again at verses 19 to 23. John is taking account, John the gospel writer, and this is the testimony of John the Baptist. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of the one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. We've already seen this witness in the courtroom already. If you look up in your text in verses six through eight, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. Or last week we saw in verse 15, John bore witness about him, speaking of Jesus, and cried out, this is he of whom I said, he, comes, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. So friends, John the Baptist, he takes the stand. And the Jews, they sent these priests and some Levites to question John. And in this gospel of John, when you see 
the word Jews mentioned. It's mentioned 68 times. The prosecution begins. These are not friendly folks. These are folks that are enemies, referring to hostile opponents of Jesus throughout our gospel. And the priests and Levites are sent to question John on the stand. They're the ones from Jerusalem. The Jews in their hostility send the ones whom dictate worship for God's people. From the most prominent city of worship for God's people, for these Jewish people from Jerusalem. If you want to send someone to cross-examine or prosecute in a murder case and there's blood on the scene, you send a DNA expert. Or if there's a train accident, you'll probably send someone from Amtrak to figure out what is going on. If you want to follow and find out why someone or potentially if someone is breaking God's rules or knows what God would say about what was taking place, you send the priests and the Levites. The Levites are from the lineage of Jacob. We saw in Genesis from the son of Levi. And they were given the privilege of leading God's people in worship. They were given the, the privilege of leading God's word people in worship in the temple after they had left Egypt. And these priests were intermediaries between God and man. They performed the sacrifices. They conducted the festivals. They led God's people in repentance. And they were the ones who were permitted to enter into the Holy of Holies once a year. These investigators were sent to get answers to what was taking place concerning John the Baptist's actions. Matthew 3, I think, helps to illustrate what is taking place in Jerusalem. It should be on the screen for you. Verses 5-6. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the regions about the Jordan were going about him. And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. So this John the Baptist, he had a significant amount of influence in this region. And it would have been irresponsible for the Jews, these priests and Levites, to not investigate what was taking place. They would have failed in their duties of protecting and leading God's people. So who are these people? They didn't know who John was, but they knew what John was doing. He was different than the priests and Levites. He was outside of Jerusalem. He was outside of the temple. He wasn't telling the people of Israel to follow him. He was calling the folks to repent and be baptized. The Levites and the priests, they were focusing on themselves and their community of followers that God was creating through them. But John was focused on Jesus. John confessed and he did not deny that he was not the Christ. John's ministry starts with who he is, not that he is not the Christ. This whole thing you see here happening in the Jordan River, pre priests and Levites, it's not about John. It's not about him and John's kingdom. It's about God and God's kingdom that he is building. And so they questioned him even further. Okay, we get you're not the Christ. Well, are you Elijah or are you the prophet? No, he's not them either. Who's Elijah? Why is he important? We saw a couple weeks ago and we saw again this morning that Elijah was expected to return at the time when God would usher in his kingdom. And if Elijah was there, the Jews, the priests, the Levites, they were 
expected to get ready. Elijah also lived a rugged lifestyle like John the Baptist, living in the wilderness of Israel. And so naturally they thought of, well, if anyone was Elijah, it's this fellow. It's John the Baptist. Well, John is not Elijah. And so they ask, are you the prophet? And he says, no. Well, who's the prophet and why is he important? And this figure points to Moses. We see in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 and 18. It should be on the screen. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is he, it is him to you shall listen. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers and I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. A Moses type prophet was expected in Jesus' day to be the one who would be the spokesperson for God. John the Baptist was speaking for God in the wilderness. So naturally, if he's not Elijah, well, he should be this prophet like Moses. The courtroom peppering of questions continues. Well, you're not Elijah. You're not Moses. Who are you? In the first three questions, John the Baptist answered all of them in the negative. I am not the Christ. I am not Elijah. I am not the prophet. But in verse 23, he gives a positive answer, but not what the Jews were expecting. Isaiah says he would be the one preparing the way of the Lord. And in the original Hebrew, if you were to look at that passage in Isaiah, Lord is in all caps. And what we know about that is that refers to Yahweh. It's God himself that he was preparing the way for. The eternal creator, the sustainer, the God who never changes, the God who keeps his promises. John was preparing the way for him. And even John the Baptist is starting to understand that this Messiah is God in the flesh, the eternal word, Yahweh. When Moses met God in the wilderness by the burning bush, he had doubts about what he was supposed to do going back to Pharaoh, and this took place in Exodus chapter three. He says, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. I am is coming. I am is arriving and will arrive. And John is bearing witness about God's word with a capital W, with God's word with a lowercase w, the scriptures. John is saying the scriptures point us to the fact that this God-man will arrive and dwell among his people like we sung already this morning. And Jesus give it, even gives himself the name of Yahweh frequently in the Gospel of John. I alluded to this in our first week together where he says, I am the bread of life. I am the resurrection. I am the door. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And names are important for Jesus in the Gospel of John. We will continue to see it. 
in the Gospel of John, in some sense, is a courtroom trial. Everything that was taking place in the courtroom, his life, his death, his resurrection, in one document for us all to know what happened. And as a reminder, the purpose of John in chapter 20. Now John did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. I am. Yahweh will arrive. Well, the morning session gets a lunch break. After lunch, the examination continues. Let's look at verse 24. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked them, then why are you baptizing? If you were neither the Christ, nor the Elijah, nor the prophet, John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany, across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. Immediately we find out who's behind what was taking place. Who really sent the priests and the Levites? Well, it was the Pharisees. John, the gospel reminder, emphatically reminds us as readers that the Pharisees are not our friends and no friend of Jesus either. It didn't take long for these secret experts who've really been behind the scenes to come to light. And these Pharisees are a small but influential group of leaders over the nation of Israel. They had a lot of sway over the observances of God's law with God's people and how God's people worshiped. They were not Levites and they were not necessarily priests. Paul was a Pharisee from the tribe of Benjamin. They were the rule keepers. So we understand that you're not the Messiah. We understand that you're not Elijah. We understand that you're not Moses. But why are you doing the things that you are doing? Why are you baptizing the way are you're baptizing? Why are all these people of Israel coming to you in the wilderness and following your leadership? And John humbly begins to talk to them about what his baptism means. John's baptism is with water but one who comes after John is so much more significant. John's answer in the witness stand is that of humility. He says, I'm just out here baptizing with water and someone is coming who is much more significant than me. So what was John doing? Jesus hadn't died yet. He hadn't been buried yet. He hadn't raised from the dead. And I thought that baptism was identifying with this death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and becoming part of God's people. Well, John's baptism was a little bit different. It was a foreshadowing of what was to come. We do believe here that baptism doesn't save us from our sins, but baptism is an outward sign of this inner transformation of our hearts. John's baptism was designed to prepare God's people, to prepare the people of Israel for the coming Messiah. John has authority and he knows it. John knows that he is sent from God, but he also has a backhanded response to the Pharisees in verse 26. I know what I'm doing, but you don't know him, referring 
to the fact that they don't know God personally. And John the Baptist is so humble that he cannot even untie the sandals of this promised Messiah, which was already a humble job, a low role to play. Servants untied sandals. Back then, there were no roads. And the walking paths were shared by the animals. So you can imagine what was on those sandals. And so the servants would take care of untying the sandals. And John says even more humbly that he's not even worthy to untie those. John is saying that he is lower than even the servants. And so what we see here in the courtroom is the one being investigated becomes the proclaimer. The Jewish investigators, they came with pride, looking down upon John, seeking to understand what John the Baptist was doing. They were concerned with their kingdom, but John was concerned about the kingdom of God, and John wanted them to know it. John the Baptist, he turns the tables on the interrogators. He didn't stand towering over them, which he could have, but he humbled himself as an unworthy servant when he could have condemned them as actual judge and jury, he reminded them of his role in God's kingdom. For John, it's all about Jesus. It's not about John's kingdom. It's about the kingdom of God. And friends, it has arrived. And John isn't finished. He has one final proclamation and testimony in the courtroom. They go, they take a recess for the night, they come back the next day. Verse 29, look with me. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and bore witness that this is the Son of God. So let's break down this last section. The next day, God's providential hand is still at work. The day after the first interrogation, the lamb himself arrives to the scene, orchestrated by God. The Jews, the Pharisees, the Levites were sent to interrogate John. And guess who just happens to arrive the next day? John pointed to Jesus the word made flesh. God's witness, again, turns the table. Jesus himself is there. He boldly declares the Messiah, the Christ, the Lamb of God is the Son of God, and that by believing in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, we have life in his name. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Behold, look, over there, take note. He is here. We just celebrated Christmas. But Christmas is always connected to Easter. Easter comes from Christmas. Easter 
comes from Christmas, and Christmas leads to Easter. Jesus is here, and his purpose in coming to earth is clear from the very beginning, that he would be the sacrificial lamb of God. Isaiah 53 speaks of Jesus in this way. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that's before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Lamb was slaughtered for the people of Israel on Passover when they were able to finally escape their slavery in Egypt by the providential hand of God. It was lamb that was eaten and celebrated by God's people on Passover. The blood was spread upon the doorposts to spare the people of God from the wrath of God that came upon Egypt's firstborn sons where God's son is the only lamb, is the, it, God's only son is that lamb to spare God's people again. It was God's only son who would be slaughtered for God's people. We see the lamb that was sacrificed by priests to cover the sins of God's people as the law pointed to Jesus in Leviticus 14. We will get there in our Bible reading plan. And the priest shall take one of the male lambs and offer it for a guilt offering along with the log of oil and wave them for a wave offering before the Lord. Jesus, the Lamb of God, would be the sacrifice that would end all sacrifices. And John knew this. And John saw this. And John proclaimed this. God himself would take away the sins of the world. And here we see the word world come into the gospel of John again. It's the word cosmos. It doesn't mean that all in the world would believe, but rather that the sacrificial offering of Jesus is available to the world, to all to receive and to believe. The world, cosmos, in John signifies a people that are against God, not a people belonging to or following God. For example, God so loved the world, the people who didn't want him, so he sent his son for those who would believe in that son as we saw in, or we will see in John three sixteen, where Jesus mentions to his disciples that you will be in the world, but not of the world in John 15 and 17. It's all the same word, where Jesus' sacrifice is sufficient for all, but it is effective for those who believe. And so theologians, they call this sacrifice on behalf of us a substitutionary atonement. Substitution, meaning that Jesus is sacrificed on our behalf. Where atonement, it means a, a making amends or a blotting out of offense or a giving of satisfaction for a wrong done or reconciling that which is alienated or restoring disrupted relationship. And that's what the lamb does for us before a holy God who requires satisfaction for sin. This is alluded to as well in the Old Testament law where the lamb was sacrificed by the priest who called to be the sacrifice of atonement in Leviticus 16, 16. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanliness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions all their, and all their sins. And so he shall do for the tent of meeting 
which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleanliness. Again, more allusions to God's word taking on flesh and dwelling with God's people we saw last week. And this leads to another theological term called propitiation, where Christ's suffering and sacrifice assumed our identity as sinner. And the judgment due on us was put on Christ. Paul says this in his letter to the Romans in chapter 3. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. The substitute was the lamb, the lamb of God. Jesus can take away the sins of everyone who puts their trust in him because he is the God-man. Jesus is man who takes our place, but Jesus is also God who can cover an infinite amount of sins. That's grace upon grace like we saw last week. The loving kindness of God where his mercy, he sends his son to die in our place on the cross for sin. That's like song we sung. His love is like a flood. And John continues his testimony. This is he of whom I said would come. But John says he doesn't know Jesus in verse 31. He knew who Jesus was. Remember, if you're familiar with the birth narratives, that Jesus' mom, Mary, was related to John's mom, Elizabeth. And what John is saying here is that he didn't know that Jesus would be the Messiah until what we see next. He knew who Jesus was, but he didn't know he came to do what he came to do until we see what comes next. Where John says, God sent him, and he who sent him told him to baptize this way with water. And when you see the Spirit descend and remain on this individual, the Messiah, this is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. We see this account as well from the other Gospels. When Jesus is baptized, this Spirit descends upon Jesus like a dove. John doesn't need to be interrogated for this response, though. He must bear witness to what he has seen and what he has heard. He can't help it. His final testimony is that this is the Son of God. Not only is he the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ, which is the Greek term for that, the one prophesied who would come in the lineage of David to rule and to reign, shown by the Spirit coming on him, like a king would have oil poured over his head, be anointed by oil. Jesus would be anointed by the Spirit coming upon him to anoint him for this role. And not only is this the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, this Word made flesh, this Messiah, this sacrificial Lamb is none other than God's Son, the second member of the Trinity. And as the Gospel finishes accounting for this testimony of John the Baptist in the courtroom of the world, the aspect of Jesus' baptism that suited the purpose of this writing of the Gospel was to bear witness specifically who Jesus was and what he came to do. Moving forward, Jesus is not a coming one. He is the arrived 
son, the Messiah, the king who would end up as a sacrificial lamb of God, God's own son for God's people. And so how do we apply this passage to our lives? I'm glad you asked. There's five things that I could see in the text to apply this for us today, living in 2022. Sir, first, think about John's purpose. He wrote this so that we would believe. And so friends, acknowledge that Jesus is the Messiah, the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. Believe that Jesus, the second member of the Trinity, the Son, died in our place on the cross for our sins. Acknowledge and believe and receive and live a life in submission to Jesus. Even Christians, we need reminders of these truths when we struggle, when we doubt. We need the gospel as well, the good news that God saves sinners through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Friends, first thing, believe. Second, remember that God is God, that we are not. Like John the Baptist, he says, I am not the Christ. We should have a sense of humility as we bring nothing to the table to save us from our sins. It's all grace upon grace, and it's actually pride that leads us into sin, saying, I am better than God, so I'm gonna do fill in the blank. We receive grace to believe, we receive grace to continue to believe, and we receive grace to make it to the end. The beginning, the middle, and the end of our walk with Jesus is all grace. Second, be humble and continue in your dependence upon God our good and gracious Father who loves you. Third, as we live in the world, we should not be ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for all who believe, as Paul says in Romans 1. We can be like John, where we can turn the world upside down. When we are asked questions, we can give an answer to them. But remember, we don't need to be asked. We can just proclaim, as John did, behold the Lamb of God. Third, acknowledge God before others and do not be ashamed. Fourth, the other side of that coin. If we live a certain way of life, we will probably be interrogated. Peter in his letter said this, we should always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the hope, for the reason, for the hope that is in you. John was approached and John was asked questions. What are you doing? He was ready and he declared what he was doing and why he was doing it. And if people aren't asking you, is that because you're not living life according to the scriptures? If you're not prepared to give a response to the question, we would love to help you. That's why we gather as God's people each Sunday. Each week we open up God's word. We help to explain it. We help to apply it. And what if tomorrow you just shared what you learned at church this weekend when someone asks you how your year has started? If the world isn't ashamed about the debauchery that they participate in on New Year's Eve, why should we feel ashamed that we gathered as God's people to behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world? 
We can share that Jesus was the God-man who took on flesh to die in our place on the cross for our sins and not be ashamed of it at all. Fourth, be ready for questions if you live according to God's word. And fifth and finally, trust God with fruit. John the Baptist, he knew that he could never save people. He said, I am not the Messiah. I am not the Christ. That Jesus is the Son of God. That Jesus is the Lamb. And John says, go to him. We don't save anyone. We proclaim and bear witness like John did. We trust God with the fruit as we remain faithful to our call in life. And we as servants, we're modeling our lives after John the Baptist, pointing people to Christ, to the Lamb, to the Son, so others can become sons and daughters of God themselves. God said he will save people through the proclamation of the gospel so we can trust him that he will do so as we participate with him and open our mouths. Our role is to bear witness confidently trusting that it is the means by which God saves sinners. Friends, believe the gospel. Remain humble. Proclaim the gospel. Be ready when you're questioned and trust God with the fruit. We have a great model in John to follow and we have an even greater Lord and Savior to worship the lamb even pays the penalties for the times when we don't want to do that. When we aren't humble, when we don't want to proclaim, when we don't have the words to the questions, when we don't trust God with the fruit. So that means we have nothing to lose because Jesus, our lamb, he's our lamb who takes away our sins. It's grace upon grace. And it continues even today. And we will celebrate that lamb sacrificed for us as we worship, as we celebrate communion together as God's people. And this should lead us to worship, which we will do right now. So will you pray with me? Father, thank you for the example we have in John of how to bear witness And God, we are not sitting on a stand, literally. We could be one day, but we're not. And so I think we easily can get distracted by the things of this world and not f remember that we are proclaimers. We are heralds of the gospel. And so God, would your gospel be continuously on our lips because you have transformed us by the grace through the God-man, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, the God who takes away our sins through the substitutionary atonement of your Son for us. And so God, would you give us confidence to stand boldly and declare who you are and what you've done to a world around us, to our friends, to our family, to even the people that live in our home. God, would you give us confidence to share it boldly trusting that you delight to save sinners through the proclamation of your gospel. And so God, as we continue to worship, God, would you receive our praises for you are a mighty God who delights to give good gifts to your children. 
The most important gift is the gift of your son. So help us to worship you. Be honored in the rest of our time together. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and join us again? I surrender.